Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. Today, we're going to explore one of the masterpieces of modern Yiddish literature, the novel The Yeshiva, written by the beloved writer Chaim Grada, which was first published in Yiddish in the late 1960s. I'm delighted to explore this novel with my friend Yehuda Berzerkin. Yehuda Berzerkin is a research fellow at the Hasidic Research Institute at Herzog College and a graduate student of Yiddish literature at Tel Aviv University, whose master's thesis explores the work of Chaim Grada. I'm so glad Yehuda Ber was able to join our program today. Welcome. Hi, Zalman. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you today. So, get started, could you tell us a little bit about your background and what sparked your interest in the work of Chaim Grada? I grew up in the 1980s and 1990s in the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn, New York. I was raised in a Lubavitch Hasidic uh, Orthodox family. I received a traditional Jewish um, Hasidic education centering on rabbinic texts, Jewish mysticism. And at a certain point, I began widening my horizons and I engaged in independent exploration of other fields of knowledge that was, um, that clashed with what I was learning at my yeshiva that was taught to me in my, my community. And at that point, I experienced what Chaim Potok describes in his novels as a core-to-core cultural confrontation, meaning I experienced a collision of worlds, at least intellectually. And I became very interested in the topic of conflicts between traditional Judaism and other worlds, be it secularism, other, other views of Judaism, other views of religion, other approaches, other thought paradigms that were uh, different than the one I grew up in. Part of it is, was part of my own uh, existential journey, but it also became a scholarly focus of mine. And hence, I read widely in Yiddish and Hebrew literature, also English literature, Chaim Potok, uh, I just mentioned before, all of his novels in one form or another deal, deal with these types of tensions between people growing up between worlds, what he called a sedition mensch. And it was actually your brother, Norman, Yossi uh, in between, uh, uh, In between person. Right. Sedition mensch is a word in German, or Yiddish means a 
in-between person or liminal figure. Yeah. And it was actually your, your brother, Zalman, your brother, Yossi Newfield, who introduced me to Chaim Grada, and he said, you must read this book, the Yeshiva, uh, or, or Tzemach Atlas, as the Yiddish title is. And I, I read it, and I was hooked, because in it, he does describe the tension between worlds in a very, very compelling, and a very, very dramatic way. And that is what I, I explore in my master's thesis and my other articles on, on Chaim Grada. That, that existence or that problem of trying to figure out who you are when you are torn between worlds, when there are two paradigms that are in conflict with each other. That is really the center, the, my, the focus of my, my, my research and, and, and interest in Chaim Grada as a person who, who had to deal with it in his own way. Right. Speaking of the person Chaim Grada, for, for our listeners who are not familiar with him, could you tell us a little bit of, uh, about the biography of Chaim Grada? Okay. Just in a nutshell, Chaim Grada uh, was born in Vilna, today Vilnius, or commonly uh, pronounced Vilnius, the capital of Lithuania. Uh, that was a very important cultural capital of Lithuanian Jewry before the, the Holocaust, before it was decimated in the Holocaust. That was one of the cultural Jewish cultural capitals of the world at that time in Eastern Europe. And Chaim Grada was born in 1910, and he grew up in that milieu, in that setting uh, of Jewish Vilna, which was also a, a hybrid or, or a community that had many, many religious Torah scholars, but also uh, secular poets and, and, and um, many different um, professionals, doctors, lawyers, Jewish scholars. And it was in this setting, which was very Lithuanian in orientation, meaning that there, there was a, there's a certain uh, Lithuanian character, if you will. Uh, there's a certain Lithuanian archetype in Jewish in Jewish folklore. The very scholarly, hard-nosed uh, intellectual. He grew up in that milieu. He um, he was born in, into a religious family. Although his, fa his father was more of a maskil, which was he was more enlightened. He was more liberal than what we would regard the norm for or ultra-Orthodoxy today and even then. His mother was a very, very pious uh, woman, and he himself went to different institutions, and he, most notably, um, he studied in some of the most extreme ascetic, focus on aestheticism, yeshivas of the Muslim movement that we'll talk about soon, known as Navardok, the Navardok branch of the of, 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 of Musser, which was a very extreme uh, type of yeshiva. And he was also a student of the, he also learned with, was mentored by one of the great towering uh, rabbinic personalities of the 20th century, known as Rabbi Avram Mishaya Karelis, otherwise known as the Chazon Ish. Really a giant of, 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 a giant in every sense of the word. As a, as a traditional rabbinic leader. And it was out of this milieu that he, that this very, very heavy um, um, education and socialization 
that he later broke away from and he became a secular Yiddish writer around 1932. So around 1932, he left orthodoxy to become a secular Yiddish writer. He joined a group called Jung Vilna. At the outbreak of World War II and the beginning of the Nazi invasion of Vilna, he ran away to Central Asia. Um, in Turkmenistan, it was in places like Stalinabad, um, what, what is known as the, the Central Asia, the, uh, the Asian part of, of, the, of the Soviet Union. So he, he, he moved in very, very deep into, into Asia and the Soviet Union. He survived the war. And he then lived in, in, in France for two years, from 1946, until he arrived to the U.S. in 1948, and he died in 1982. Now, during his United States period is when he became a very prolific Yiddish prose writer. Prior to the Holocaust, he was a poet. When he arrived in America, he began writing his prose. He began publishing in 1951 until he died. In 1982, he had a pretty much a weekly uh, serialized column in the newspaper where he would write his novels and, and his poetry. So he was a staple of the Yiddish press in, in, in between the 1951 to 1982. And he is, I would say, he is the most famous Yiddish, one of the greatest Yiddish writers you never heard about. His rival, his nemesis, Isaac Washeva Singer, everybody has heard of Isaac Washeva Singer, uh, Isaac Washeva Singer tends to write a, a very mystical vein dealing with deep books and demons and imps and goblins and, 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 and he deals with sexuality a lot. Uh, it's very fanciful and very exotic. Uh, Chaim Grada insisted on a realism. He, didn't, he did not resort to mysticism. He was a Litvak, he wasn't a Chassid. So he offers a much more sober and a lot of people would say much more realistic historically accurate portrayal of Eastern European Jewry, and that is what people really liked in, in him. Professor Ruth Weiss says he had a Dostoevskian talent to describe Lithuanian Jewry, and he really did. And that is what we owe to Chaim Grada. Right. And so, as you mentioned, Chaim Grada's own life, as well as the the setting for his magnum opus that we're speaking about today, which, as you mentioned, in Yiddish, the title of the novel is Semach Atlas, Der Yeshiva, and in English it was translated simply as The Yeshiva. Um, this work is also uh, really um, uh, centered around the Musser movement and the teachings of the Musser movement. Could you tell us a little bit about Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, the, one of the founders of the Muslim movement, and uh, what was um, the main or basic message of the Muslim movement that he inspired? Okay, so Samach Atlas the Yeshiva, as his own in Yiddish, does focus on the Muslim movement. And Rabbi Yisrael Salanter was known as the founder of the Muslim movement. Again, I just as, a, as, as an aside, don't confuse the Muster movement with Muster literature. There are books of ethics that precede Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. He did not invent the ethical thrust in Judaism, but he did begin a movement. Now, I will say that the movement, uh, his focus was twofold. One main focus of, of his was to emphasize the ethical and moral dimension of Jewish behavior between one, between, between humanity, between a, 
between a man and a fellow, obviously including women, um, one of the one one story, just an anecdote, very briefly, I'll mention is in, in Jewish law there is a, uh, uh, there is a law that before we eat bread, we, we wash our hands. So he said that if you want to be ethical, you want to be religiously pious in an ethical way, some people tend to pour a lot of water because if you pour a lot of water, so then you're doing the mitzvah of washing your hand in a very, very meticulous way. So he said it's better to spare, to do, to wash with as little water as you can that way you would spare the maid or the, or the poor uh, water carrier from having to go and carry the water. So it was, a change, it was a change of focus from ritual observance, what is known in, in rabbinic lingo as the Adam Lamukhin, those rituals pertaining to, uh, between, pertaining to the realm between man and God, to the Adam Lachadere, between man or a human and his, and his fellow. Uh, that was one focus. Another focus, and this is really the core of the Muslim movement, is how to do what is right. Because many, many people know it's right, uh, but they don't do it. It's very hard for them to do it. For example, we all know, know, for example, that we should exercise and eat healthfully and not smoke. But many people have a challenge doing these things. So that has been a perennial question in ethical philosophy. How do you get a person to do what's right? Knowing that something is right doesn't appear to be good enough. So his, he tried to devise a system of getting someone to do, a, to do what's right uh, in different ways. That was really the, the core of the Muslim movement. One of the central characters in the novel that we're exploring is Semach Atlas, who figures right. in the title of the, in the Yiddish title of the novel. Um, could you tell us a little bit about who Semach Atlas was? And how did the Musser movement influence his psyche? Okay, I, I, Samach Atlas is really a fictional composite character based on many, many different people, both real and imagined. Um, so he is not a, a real person. He is a composite, a, a fictional character who represents, in my view, the different complexes uh, the different problems, the, the different pathologies, really, of Musser. So there's a certain bias, I feel, in what Rabbi describes about Samach Atlas. He is not the typical, necessarily the typical Musser character. But he is somebody who is extreme in every way. He, he's, a, his, he's a titanic figure. He's a larger-than-life figure. He is physically very large. He has a very, very commanding and charismatic presence. He is somebody who is, who is extremely torn. Uh, on the one hand, he believes in Torah and living a religious lifestyle. On the other hand, he even doubts the existence of God. And it seems like his own doubts propel him to even greater religious fervor to fight the skepticism. He is a person who is very, very passionate about being right and ethical, and he cannot stand any kind of pretense, any kind of falsehood. Uh, any pretension, any kind of hypocrisy, uh, but at the same time, he is less than scrupulous in his own behavior unwittingly. Unwittingly, he, in, his, in his zeal to be a moral superman, he, looks, he overlooks the small things. Like there's an expression, charity begins at home. He's busy saving the world, and, at the, and, at, and, and, 
in his zeal to save the world, he overlooks charity in his own home. But I think the real core tension that Rada addresses through the character of Semach Atlas, at least in my opinion, would be the conflict between psychological determinism and moral freedom. In other words, I view the novel as essentially a novel of ideas. It is an intellectual novel. The, the intellectual ideas are, are explored through a plot. It is an intellectual idea that there is an intellectual question that is being explored through the plot. And the question is, can a person, can a person be in control of their destiny? Could, is a person free to overcome their own psychology? Their own, their 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 inborn instincts, and 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 and, and live completely in, in a moral way. Uh, can moral freedom triumph over psychological determinism? Really, the question is: He's pitting Rabbi Solanter against Freud or Spinoza or others who believe in psychological determinism. That's really the crux of the novel, as I see it. Could Musser? Could that quest for perfection? Is that possible? Is it possible for somebody to do good, for example, with any ulterior motive? That is one major issue that he addresses. Is it possible to be to, to be good, do good without any ulterior motive? Is it possible to completely uh, renounce the, the, the sexual desire or the desire for possession or greed, vanity, lust, avarice, uh, the seven vices come, come to play here because that was a very strong focus of the Muslim movement. The Muslim movement very much wanted people to eradicate their, their vices. Uh, and the question that Grada asked, is that possible? Is it possible for somebody not to care about money, for example? The, the Navarro, they had a, pro, a, 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 a whole educational system. For example, one of the things that they did is they, they had a month, they, they, they had this... Um, regimen of different exercises or different activities during different months of the year. And one month was a month of hefkatus. Hefkatus means uh, that, you, that you relinquish your possessions. Everything is free. So at that point, there was no such thing as this is my book or my food or even my clothing. I, I share it with everybody. I don't care about my possession. And the core conflict that Grada addresses is is that way of life possible? Is the Navarda philosophy, which is even a more extreme version of Rabbi Sorol Salanter's philosophy, mainly their philosophy that a person can completely disavow their own natural instincts in the quest of moral perfection, and, and that idea of moral perfection is that the only thing that a person should do is the good. They almost want to make them disembodied, virtuous people. People that are of pure virtue. I only do things because I ought to do them. There are no feelings involved. I'm not doing it because I want to do it, because I feel good about it or bad about it. I do it because it's the right thing to do. This was really the, the core of the Muslim movement. Because they, they claim that if somebody does something because they want to do it, so then you can have their negative feelings that would always also play a role. So a person's own feelings is an unreliable guide to ethics. That is, was their philosophy. So Samach Atlas is a character through which, through his own struggle, Grada explores the question of is it possible to achieve a moral freedom that is completely free from any kind of psychological determinism? That is the way I would, I would 
I would encapsulate it in a nutshell. Right, and and you mentioned that that the that um, Tzemach Atlas is uh, um, operating within the Nevarduk universe. So the, the Nevarduk, as you mentioned, is an extreme form. Uh, or branch of the Musser movement itself, and Nevardic is a is a is a geographical location, but but it refers to this particular kind of extreme uh, uh, form of asceticism that Tzemach Atlas, uh, one the one of the main protagonists in the novel, is trying to to live by. Um, could you tell us a little bit about some of the other techniques that the Navarduk school of Musser employed in order to try to discipline the body or the person to act in this highly uh, moral uh, manner? Okay. So, as I mentioned before, Musser, Musser at large, not just Navarduk, had an, a, a practice called Tikkun Hamidas, Tikkun Hamidot in, in Spartan pronunciation. Tikkun Hamidas means the correction or the perfection of character or, or inculcation of, of virtue. And it's actually interesting, and studies have been done on this, comparing the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin, where he discusses his own uh, system that he devised on working on different character traits. If you read about it in the autobiography of, of, of Benjamin Franklin, and there was somebody, a Musser figure by the name of Menachem Leffen, who wrote a book, Cheshben HaNefesh, that Rabbi Sol Salanter sponsored and published. Uh, so it was a very interesting um, phenomenon in its own right, where Musser took ideas knowingly or unknowingly from Benjamin Franklin, but um, yeah, that, that is a whole, you can do a whole podcast just on that, the whole, the whole history of Benjamin Franklin and the Muslim movement and people have written papers on it. But the main idea is that Benjamin Franklin and the Muslim, they believe that you need to focus on, on character development, the same way people today focus on self-help and all kinds of different uh, psychological exercises that you do with if somebody suffers from depression, there are CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, there are all kinds of different therapies. There was a whole system of Muster where there were different exercises devised to improve the person's character. Now, some, some of these focus very much on being, um, uh, for example, being careful about how you speak to other people, what was known as Lushan Hara, not to say something bad to somebody else. Uh, maybe one week you'll focus on not wasting time, for example. Another week you might focus on being frugal, not spending too much money. That's the kind of things that Benjamin Franklin talks about. Um, but in the Varduk, the point of all these exercises, and I'll mention a few of them, was a lot more radical. For example, one of the practices of the Varduk that would be inevitably evoke derision and mockery would be somebody, two young yeshiva boys walking into a store, walking to a shop in the middle of the day, and they start uh, praying the afternoon prayer service that Orthodox Jews or observant Jews pray, and start shaking wildly with wild gesticulations and start screaming and shouting in the middle, in the middle, of, a, in the middle of a store. In the middle of, uh, you go, let's say, in Israel, you would go to Shuk Machri Yehuda, or imagine a Madison uh, or, 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 or a Madison Avenue or Times Square 
uh, imagine a bunch of Orthodox Jews come to Times Square and start screaming and shouting uh, uh, the Mincha service on the top of their lungs just to evoke derision. But the point of it was not to make themselves into a mockery. The point of it was to um, inoculate themselves against public opinion. In other words, one of the very strong objectives of Navardok, and actually Chaim Rad in a lecture actually traces it in terms of an intellectual history, strangely enough, to Diogenes, the cynics, the Greek cynics. There was a cynical, uh, uh, a philosopher, a Greek philosopher by the name of Diogenes, and Diogenes is somebody who disregarded social convention, complete disregard of social convention. So this was another form of disregard of social convention. Or, for example, example, they would walk into a, a, a drugstore and ask for a hammer and nails, or go over to a non-Jewish, again, this, this may or may have not happened, but the, the examples given, they, they, they would go to a non-Jewish couple and ask them, what is the parsha of the week? What portion of the Torah is what read in the synagogue on, on the Sabbath? Those were the kinds of things that they would engage in with the purpose of kind of defending themselves, eradicating their usual normal uh, 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 bourgeoisie, if you will, uh, sensitivity to the world. You have to realize also that there was a strong Russian revolutionary influence against the Russian Russian revolution at that time was really in its, in, its, in its height. We're dealing at the turn of the 20th century, so that had a very strong influence. I'll just, I'll, I'll just note another practice, which was another, another feature of what you're talking about. One of the key doctrines of the founder of Navardok, his name was Yosef Yosel Horowitz, he died at, around 1920, give or take. Yosef Yezel Horowitz, one, one of the things that he was known for was his belief, what is called, and I'll translate, bitochein on hishtablos. This is a Yiddish, a Yiddish phrase. Bitochein on hishtablos means that according to Jewish law, Jewish custom, uh, Jewish way of life, one has to work in order to earn a living. Uh, one is not exempt from work. One must work. However, there are certain people or there are certain very uh, spiritual people who they would trust that God would provide. They would be religious and trust that God would provide. So Yosef Yezel developed within himself that, that attribute where I don't, I don't need to make a living. I don't care about anything. I just trust in God that God will provide. Now, some might cynically, if you employ a hermeneutic of, 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 of suspicion, some people might say that Yosef Yezel was a non-civilized person or a wild person who didn't care about looking after his family. He wasn't interested in, 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 in the prosaic day-to-day activities. So he found a way out. Oh, now I trust God. But be that as it may, I don't want to psychoanalyze Yosef Yezel. The bottom line was that in the Vardaka Yeshivas, they would have a practice that they would go away, let's say, into the forest for three days. They would not take any provisions with them, no food, no nothing, only the bare minimum. And they would go there just to, and, and, and they, would, they would survive whatever comes their way, whatever food they found along, or people help bring them food. And that was an exercise in internalizing that they could live in such a manner, like they'll get manna from heaven, the mon minashamayim, to support them without having to work as, as normal people do. So 
So it was like an anti-social in a certain way or the conventional way of doing things. But the whole point was, it wasn't just to be anti-social. The point was that Abiezo believed that the only way somebody can really do what is right is if they disregard uh, social convention, the niceties of, 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 of culture, uh, they need a. They they have to. They they shouldn't care about what people think. They shouldn't care about their usual desires. And he felt that if somebody develops an attitude of total disregard for themselves, then they can become. They'll they'll, they'll only care for what's right. I mean, I'll just finish with one more one more fact that in the Hasidic history, although the Muslim movement was not Hasidic at all, it was Lithuanian. It's a different cultural and, and, and intellectual universe in Hasidism, in the Hasidic movement, but there was one Hasidic Rebbe known as Rabbi Nachman Mendel of Kotsk. The Kotsker, who in many ways, at least based on what we know of him from, from uh, stories that people tell, also embodied this total disregard uh, of, 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 of human needs and of, of your own pride and envy, and the great Jewish thinker and writer, Abraham Joshua Heschel, the way he puts it, the Kutzker's principle was, and he puts it very eloquently, as Heschel does, to disregard self-regard. To disregard your own self-regard. Don't care about yourself. Take life seriously, but not yourself. In a certain sense, that is the core of the entire Nevada. To disregard self-regard. Or as he says in Yiddish, don't care about yourself. I, I, I don't care about me anymore. It's more about the cause. Or the very idealistic way of life, you're only devoted to the cause. You don't care what happens with yourself. And I'll even say something. I'll, I'll finish with this. I must say this. I just uh, re recall this now. They were so extreme or fervent or devoted, however you want to put it, to their belief system that everything comes from God and that they're doing the right thing, that they suffered a tremendous uh, oppression from the Sexia, which was the, um, the Jewish section of the Bolsheviks trying to stamp out religion in, in the Soviet Union. Many of them were, 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 were jailed in Avardok, and eventually they had to uh, emigrate to Poland, which is a whole other story. Part of the novel deals with how Tzemach Atlas would, would, would literally lift kids over his shoulder and as bullets would fly by from the guards, from the border guards, guards he would he would uh, smuggle them across the border from, from Russia to Poland. But anyway, where the stories go, and what, if, even if it didn't happen, it definitely could have happened, I believe it could have happened, that once uh, some of the soldiers or officers of the Yevsexia of, 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 or, or the um, uh, other Bolsheviks came in, they wanted to close down the Navarta for yeshivas, they actually came into the building, to the yeshiva building, and they pointed a gun to somebody and said, close the yeshiva. So the, the guy opened up his shirt and he said, shoot, shoot. He really believed that if God wanted him to die, that he... he he, he believed one of two things. Either God wants him to die, and in which case, so the, the, the guy will, will, will shoot him. Or that if God doesn't want him to die, the soldier can try shooting him from today to tomorrow and nothing will happen. I guess he won. He did it. He wasn't killed. He was so surprised by by this show of, of, of brazenness, of audacity, of chutzpah, or ideological uh, uh, devotion that they didn't even know what to, what, what to say. 
So I'm just giving you a little bit of a flavor of what Nevidus was all about. This wasn't a, a, this was like the Marines, if you will, the Marines of, 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 of Jewish ethical uh, conduct. This was not for the faint-hearted, and, and that's where you have to deal with those people. If you're in the, in the army and you can't put up with this uh, 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 regiment, so then you're bound to fail. And that's really how what I think of what Gada felt. A lot of the people suffered psychological pathologies and, and problems and complexes because they were not Marines. They weren't moral Marines. They couldn't live up to the very extreme demands of the environment. Maybe Rabbi Yosef Yezel could. Maybe there were a few people like Gada has this thing, my quarrel with Hershra Sainer, which is a very famous a uh, short story of his, probably his most famous work, where he debates an environment Muslim after the war. So Reb Hershva Sainer is a bona fide Muslim and he really lives it. So I think it's important to point out that while Grada is deconstructing the Vardok, he is deconstructing those that were not real Marines. There were, there were still some real Marines who really believed it and were able to live up to it. But Grada felt that this was not possible for him or for people like him. And that is why one of the reasons I, I feel very strongly why he left orthodoxy, because he was exposed to a very radical form of it in the form of the Vardak Musa. Right, right. And uh, you mentioned that um, Grada himself spent time in yeshiva in 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 Vilna and was a student of, of the famous Lithuanian rabbi, the Chazon Ish. And in the novel, uh, the yeshiva, there's a character who's a stand-in for the Chazon Ish, and Grada calls him the Machze Avram. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how Grada contrasts the Mach, the character of the Machze Avram with that of Tzemach Atlas? Yeah, so I just want to give a, a, a brief background of the, the Mazav Ram, the uh, person, the figure, the, the stand-in character for the Chazon Ish. Can you hear me? Hello? Sorry, because the video is not synchronized with the audio, so there, there's, a, there's a lag with the video, so I, I'll just continue with the audio. Okay. So we're talking about the Mahzav Rome. The Mahzav Rome was based on the real uh, personality, the Chazon Ish of Avram Mishai Karelis. I think he was born in 1878 and died in 1953. Like I mentioned before, he was one of the great giants of Haredi Jewry uh, in the 20th century, especially later on when he emigrated to Israel after 1933, he became the leading Haredi leader. Um, the ultra-Orthodox Haredi being the uh, uh, a Hebrew term. Right, for, for ultra-Orthodox Jewry. And he became a leader. He was a tremendous Talmudic scholar. But when he lived in Vilna, he, he lived a very low-key life. He, he shunned the limelight. He did not have an official position. When I say rabbi, I mean scholar, not rabbi of a congregation. That, that there's some, uh, some people are liable to get confused about that. Rabbi does not necessarily mean somebody who, who actually leads a congregation or is a practicing or communal rabbi. Rabbi can mean somebody who is a British scholar. He was a very great rabbi, but he was not an official rabbi in terms of a communal leader until much later. And even then it was unofficial. It was by dint of his charisma. But anyway, in terms of the contrast in the novel, the way he portrays um, 
his teacher, he calls him the Isha Elohim, a man of God. He really compares him to, to the prophets in the uh, 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 to the prophets of old. He had a tremendous amount of respect, Chaim a tremendous amount of reverence for for um, the Chazon Ish, and that is actually telling because although he Grada himself left ultra orthodoxy, he was. He, in his later life, after ni- 1932 or so, it was no longer an observant Jew. He, he, he could, in his lifestyle, he was a, more or less a secular Jew, and he did certain observances from time to time, but did not consider himself an observant Jew until until he died. That didn't change. He didn't become a Balchuba, didn't become a penitent, um, but he still retained a tremendous amount of reverence and criticism towards his teacher, and that was a very a very, a, 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 I would say even more personal in, in certain ways than Semach Atlas. Semach Atlas is a fictional character. The Mahzah of Rome was a real character in, in, in Grada's life. To the point that I saw in certain manuscripts of this novel in Yiddish that instead of writing Mahzah of Rome, he wrote Chazoin Ish. In other words, he slipped. He forgot for a moment that he's writing about a fictional character. He wrote Chazoin Ish. Yeah. So he was obviously thinking about his teacher and was trying to immortalize his teacher. And as his wife, Ina Heckergrada, who is a very, very fascinating character in her own right, you can write a book about her, and, and I'm sure now with the digitization of Grada's archives, more will come to light. But um, Ina Grada wrote that the novel Samach Atlas was like a cemetery with a beautiful mausoleum built for the Chazonish. So I feel that uh, that one of his very strong impulses of writing the book was to immortalize and to pay tribute to his teacher, the Chazon Ish. But I would say in terms of the contrast between these two characters, Samach Atlas is somebody who suffers from religious conflict and turmoil because he himself is a, a man divided against himself. He is somebody who has a very strong ethical impulse, but at the same time has a very, very strong lust, a very strong id, has very, very strong sexual desires. He's in constant conflict with himself. Uh, on the one hand, he's, re- he's religiously observant, but he has doubts whether or not God exists. He's a person who is deeply, di- deeply tortured and conflicted. The Chazoin Ish is the exact opposite. He is somebody who has a tremendous amount of religious and spiritual equilibrium and balance. He is somebody who doesn't doubt the existence of God. He is very, very sure in his religious way. So I would put that the, the, the Magza of Rome is like an anchor, a solid anchor in contrast to the tumultuous raging sea, which is a Semach Atlas character. They play off each other that way. And the the excesses of a Samach Atlas who is protesting too much, fighting too hard to be pious, is 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 is, is tempered by the Chazoin Ish. The Chazoin Ish wants him to be more normal, more balanced, not to be such an eccentric or extreme character. Because the difference is, is that Samach Atlas is always reaching for what is beyond his reach. He is reaching for a level of, of pious or moral perfection that is beyond his reach. And he's always fighting with himself. And the more he falters, the more extreme he becomes. 
Chazayin Ish, as Grabe puts him, or the Magza Avram, was born an angel. He doesn't have internal struggles. What Semach uh, Atlas wants to be, the wannabe, he's a wannabe, the Magza Avram is. And therefore, he doesn't have to struggle. And he has a very, and he has a very powerful uh, uh, saying because God has, has a powerful description. Because the Magza Avram believes in God, he also believes in people. But because the Samach Atlas doesn't believe in God, he doesn't believe in people. Or the way he puts Samach Atlas, he's very prideful, he's very arrogant. And because he's arrogant, he doubts the existence of God because he never saw God. So, whereas the Mahzavram has that humility, um, that he does, he, he has a humility towards other people and, and towards himself. So the 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 way I would put it is that the Mahzavram is really like the sun, the stationary luminary, that great luminary in the novel around which everything rotates and and and, and orbits. So both the, the Samach Atlas and Heiko Vilner, the stand-in for Chaim Grada, of course, they both rotate around them. In other words, they're both going through major shifts, but they're heavily influenced by him in different ways. So that, in brief, is the, the character of Samach Atlas, which is the raging sea, tortured soul against the person who has a deep a calm and repose and, and confidence in his religious and existential predicament. Right. Speaking of Heiko Vilner, could you tell us a little bit about the Heiko Vilner character and how he contrasts or how he uh, operates uh, compared to uh, Tzemach Atlas? That's very, very interesting. So Heiko Vilner is the literary stand-in, the alter ego, however you want to say it, of Chaim Grada himself. Uh, this is a, the novel in many ways is an autobiographical novel. The debut of Heiko Vilner happens later in the story because he's not the main character. But I call the novel, I said this is a novel, I call it unraveling the double helix of the novel. The double helix is the Samach Atlas trajectory and the second helix is the Heiko Vilner trajectory. Chaiko uh, Vilner is Chaim Rada himself, who learns in the yeshiva of Nevardok. But very early on, when he goes to the yeshiva Nevardok, which is a generic name, like the, 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 the chain, the generic name of the, the, the brand name of the yeshiva, he actually studied in the yeshiva of Nevardok, of this movement in a place called Valkenik, which was near Vilnius, which was near Vilna. And over there, he was exposed to the very uh, austere and rigid and ascetic practices of, of Navardok. And that is also where he ends up meeting the, the, the Mahzavram, the Chazoyim Kish. Uh, Heiko Vilner is a very bright person, but he himself is conflicted. Because on the one hand, as he puts it, among the street uh, among the street people of Vilna, he's a bankvetcher. He's a bench warmer. Bankvetcher is real, real ultra-Orthodox Yiddish lingo, a bankvetcher, somebody who sits for hours on end studying, studying Talmud. So among the, 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 the people of the street in Vilna, the common folk, he's a bankvetcher. But among people of the, uh, the more studious types, he is a, he, he's almost like a gangster himself. He describes himself in terms of a gangster. 
He grew up on a street called Yaktivergas, which means Butcher Street. Literally, Butcher Street in Vilna. I once then went to Vilna, and they showed us Vilna, and they said, like, this is the Sin City. This is like the, the Las Vegas uh, 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 district of Vilna. It was actually known for its gluttony and for, for meat, and, and so he plays on it a lot. Heiko Vilna with his with a very strong id, very strong lust, very strong, very hot-headed temperament. And at the same time, he also has tremendous aesthetic uh, sensibilities. He is a budding artist. And dealing with own, his own sexuality and his own aesthetic awareness, and then later on with his own independent philosophical way of looking at the world, which is heretical, puts him at very, very strong odds with, with uh, being a yeshiva bacher. Being the yeshiva bacher, the yeshiva student that's expected of him. He's not a docile, ultra-orthodox, compliant, obedient student who studies Talmud a whole day. Instead of studying Talmud, he has a sexual picadillos with all kinds of different women in the, in the novel. And he is, uh, he's more enthralled with beauty and nature, with the forest of Balkanik, than with the laws in, in, in the Code of Jewish Law. So he is somebody, in this regard, the, the Heichel Dillner trajectory in the novel is very much a Bildungsroman, or a, 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 a novel dealing with a coming of age story, formation of identity. And in terms of his, his, his interaction with the Magzav Rome and Samach Atlas, I will say something, an insight that I did have while I was reading and analyzing the book, but in many ways, Heiko Wilner is the shadow, or more like the, 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 the younger twin of a Samach Atlas. There, is, there are certain qualities of Samach Atlas, his angry outbursts, his even desire for physical fights at times, that... Um, that are reflected in Heiko Wilner's character. In Heiko Wilner, there's an incident in the novel where there's this guy, Vove Barbitoler. Vove Barbitoler, who is a drunk, he's also a very interesting character in the novel. But at a certain point, he threatens Heiko Wilner, and Heiko Wilner lifted a stender, a lectern, or like a small table to hit him, to get him out of the way. And he also describes a Samach Atlas fraught with Baba Barbitola. So in other words, the way I look at it, Heiko, Chaim Grada is saying, Samach Atlas, this great Novarbiter pietist, is no different in his core than I am. I am, a, I am a street gangster. He is also a street gangster. He's also a ruffian. But he, the difference is that he has this quest. He's a wannabe moralist. He wants to go against himself. And he believes in this moral vision of Navarduk. And I think this is a very, very successful literary technique that Grada subtly employs. It's not always noticeable where he juxtaposes Heiko Wilner to Samach Atlas. Say, Heiko Wilner, for example, struggles with his own uh, sexual desires in the novel. And Samach Atlas also does. He doesn't act on them. But when he comes to Valkanik, there's a whole story I don't want to get into now. He, he, he leaves his wife in, in, in Lomja, and he comes to Valkanik, the, the founding yeshiva. And there he lives a, a celibate, a life of abstinence in Valkanik, uh, Samach Atlas. And there's a very, very moving scene 
where both of them are tortured about their sexual desires and, and, and their and their and their temptation, and each one is like thinking that it cannot be that they're really dealing with this demon. And their whole conversation is almost in this kind of lofty spiritual uh, uh, yeshiva lingo when bottom line, they're both struggling with the same thing. So I guess what I would put, what, the way I would put it is, is that the more you read the novel, the more you realize that he is, that he is stripping down Samach Atlas, he's deconstructing him and saying, Samach Atlas, you're not much different than me, Chaim Gradu, as the big Gate Sahara, the big, the big id, all these desires and lusts and hot-headedness. The one who is truly great is the Mahzab Ram. And that becomes obvious that both of them, although originally Samach Atlas is the guide of, of, of Heiko Vilner, eventually Heiko Vilner realizes that he's not a real teacher for him because he has his own desires. Only the Mahzab Ram is truly great, but even he cannot be a real mentor for him because he is too great. He was born great. He's never going to be pious like the Chazoyim Ish, who cares more about the Talmud than, than, than his own instincts, his own desires. And that, and, and I feel also one of the hidden, uh, I, I, I guess, a subtext or substrata of the novel is the fact that Radha didn't really have a real mentor. His father died when he was about 17 years old. So he didn't really, he didn't really have a mentor or father figure in his life. I see the Chazayim Ish as an attempt at a father figure, but it wasn't fully successful. He tried, but the gap between between the Chazayim Ish and, and Rada was too great to be bridged. And Samach Atlas Navarda couldn't either be a proper role model for him. So I think I said one of the hidden uh, takeaways that I took was that it was a struggle for mentorship in the novel. The Chazoyim Ish taught Grada a vision, gave him a vision of what true piety is, but he couldn't be a real role model for him. Right. And um, I- I'm curious if you could speak a little bit about the uh, Chaim Grada's writing style. You mentioned that uh, if you compare Grada's uh, uh, literary focus to, let's say, Isaac Basheva Singer, who is a much better known uh, Yiddish writer who ended up winning the Nobel uh, Prize for Literature. Uh, and I know there are some uh, y- Yiddishists, uh, div- um, people who are devoted to Yiddish literature even today, who are still um, you know, heartbroken that that Isaac Basheva Singer won that prize, that they felt that Chaim Grada really, in 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 fairness, deserved it. We're, we're going to leave that on the side for now. But but um, but if you could say a little bit about the the writing style of Chaim Grada himself. Okay, I, I just distinct refer your, your of, of his writing. Right. So I, I would just re, uh, um, refer your listeners to a short story written by the famous American Jewish, uh, or is a Canadian Jewish novelist, Cynthia Ozick. She wrote a story called Envy or Yiddish in America, talking about the rivalry between, between Yiddish writers. But uh, to the point of your question, about the writing style of Chaim Grada, I would say there are several features that make Chaim Grada's writing unique. First of all, in terms of the the high density or parochial Jewish um, terminology that he uses. He uses very dense parochial Jewish terminology to the extent 
that I have compared the serialized version of, of the novel that first appeared in the newspaper. It actually ran in the newspaper uh, from 1955 to 1960, over a five-year period. Not every week, but almost every week. And it ended up being something like uh, um, like 1,700 pages in, in, in the original version. Then it was reduced to like 815. But anyway, in the Yiddish version, the original Yiddish version use, uses a lot of Navarro jargon that, to be quite honest, I have to learn. Meaning I am a graduate of ultra-Orthodox yeshiva institutions. I know the Talmudic lingo. I understand it. I understand the, 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 the terminology that a, a Talmudic scholar understands. But nevertheless, I have to learn many of the concepts because they are very particular and peculiar to Navarduk. So he uses a very, very, if you want to call it specific dialect, figuratively speaking, not literally, but figuratively, the dialect, the terminology is very niche, very particular. And again, if you want to use a, a, a fancy word of, of verisimilitude, trying to imitate reality, if you trying to replicate reality so it should feel real, the lingo that he uses is, is crucial for for his language. And that's why a lot of the, uh, much of the bickering over the translations of Grada's works uh, through his uh, widow or his wife, Ina, Ina Hecker Grada and others were, um, were, were, were about finding a translator who understood both all the Yiddish terminology and was competent as a literary translator. But you have to realize there aren't that many uh, people that are professional translators, in other words, professional literary people, that yet get all those arcane references. It, it isn't easy. Uh, if you're writing about general, and I generally say this about Yiddish literature, Yiddish literature, especially Yiddish literature dealing with the Orthodox lifestyle, is really twice removed from English. It is a different language, English and Yiddish, but even Yiddish, a secular Yiddish, Yiddishist, somebody who just studied Yiddish from secular Yiddish schools without being exposed to the Talmud would not understand Grada because there are many terms that you need to go to Yeshiva to know. And that is why people like me who grew up in the yeshiva world, but later on went his own way, branched out in my own way, that is why I'm drawn to Grada, because Grada is a bridge between worlds. That is so essential about Grada. Grada doesn't, he uses the real lingo that I grew up in the yeshiva, and he uses it to great effect, but at the same time, he deals, he, he, he has a secular outlook on the world, which is very different than a typical ultra-Orthodox or ultra-Orthodox understanding, and in that sense, he's even different than a writer like Chaim Potak. Chaim Potak does use certain words that are maybe specialized words, and maybe not every reader will get every word, but because he's writing in English, because he's writing in English, he's already dumbing down, already lost in translation. Whereas Chaim Grada is propelling you to a Yiddish-speaking environment, he is bringing you back to the yeshiva. You almost feel like you're in the yeshiva. And that is a second feature about Grada that I think is very powerful is his realism in general. He, he, he has a tremendous knack for describing things realistically. He'll go to the synagogue and he'll give you a tour of the different 
uh, this friend rolls in the pews of the synagogue according to the socioeconomic status. It's almost as if you're watching a movie. I remember reading one of the scenes. It was so powerful because I felt like it was a movie where it's literally, it's almost as if you could watch it with your mind's eye of him planning, taking the video camera and doing the slow uh, uh, view of the whole uh, of the whole synagogue. And there was also his psychological realism, especially in the novel Samach Atlas. And in that sense, he's very much, in certain ways, he's very much, or I think in many ways, a Russian writer. And he combines in certain ways both the talent of a, of a, a Fyodor, Fyodor Dostoevsky, which is deep psychological realism, getting into the character. That is a Samach Atlas. Samach Atlas is a very deep psychological novel, getting into the, the nitty-gritty of his character, but also... It is also, he also has a talent of a Leo Tolstoy that he can portray a very broad canvas of, of, of characters. He'll give you not only the few people that he's focusing on, but he also, uh, he also gives you a panoramic view of the different people that populate his novels, which are based on the different uh, sectors of, the real, of, of, of Jews that were living in Eastern Europe. So his realism is very, very powerful. And in that sense, that's why he also won awards for, he won a, a, an award of the American Academy of Jewish Research. Professor Saul Lieberman gave him a reward for, for Jewish history, for, for scholarship, because he felt that the novel was so realistic that it portrayed uh, the life. I'll just end with one anecdote about this, that the... Louis uh, 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 Finkelstein, he was, he, he was uh, the head of JPS, I don't know, was the dean of the JPS, I know the technical term, but for many, many years he was in, uh, in charge, he was on uh, one of the top people of the Jewish Theological Seminary. And uh, Louis Finkelstein complained to his, to his colleague, Professor Saul Lieberman, was one of the greatest Talmudists, the Talmudic scholars of the 20th century, that he's American-born, so he never knows. He never knew what it feels like to be in the Lithuanian, the legend, legendary Lithuanian yeshivas. They were like the Talmudic universities, the Harvards of, of 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 Talmud. That's really what they were. So one day, Saul Lieberman brings a, a actually a chapter of Semach Atlas from the newspaper where he describes the different yeshiva groups, the different types of yeshiva students, and he says, "Read this chapter." And it would be as if you were in all these different yeshivas. Because he felt it was giving such a real portrayal of the yeshivas. Read this chapter, and you will get a sense of what it was to be in, in all these different yeshivas, of, of the life in Eastern Europe. Right. All right. On that note, uh, we're going to have to leave it. Um, thank you so much for taking your time to share your thoughts with us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. That concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.